We're doing Isaiah. This is uh, the first lesson. It's not lesson one, but it's going to be the first lesson. Because you know me, I can't ever just leave it the way it is in the book. Um, so we're going to do introductions and backgrounds today. I want to lay the stage or set the stage uh, for the book as we get into it. So we won't come to an application at the end of this, but you will have a understanding of what's going on and where Isaiah is at and all that. It's funny, most people know Isaiah only from his prophecies about Jesus. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, in a bit. But that's, I mean, that's usually where it begins and ends, particularly for uh, evangelicals. We, we spend a lot of time looking at Isaiah chapter 53, uh, usually around Christmas time. And stuff like that. So we don't, we, we miss a lot that's in Isaiah because the rest of it was written to Israel uh, because he's a prophet and all that. And so and most people don't, I mean, there are 66 chapters. And for the most part, evangelicals focus in on just a couple. So we're going to look at the background. What set this off to be written by Isaiah and understand um, the book. There are also several issues with the book, and we're going to talk about those here, and you'll see what they are, what they are because modern-day criticism of Scripture has come up with some questions and answers, and I like to give you the answer, or at least give you good answers to those questions um, and stuff like that. So let's uh, jump in, and uh, we'll start doing that. Can everybody see the screen? All right, let's go. There we go. So we have introduction. We'll start off with the uh, easy, and um, we will move to the more difficult. What was the purpose of a prophet? To relay God's message to the people. Okay, to relay God's message to the people. I'm impressed, Cindy. Most people, that's not, what they, that's not their first guess. Everybody knows that, but they, they usually guess something else first. What do they normally guess? Future. To tell the future. Yeah, when I say a prophet, most people jump to, oh, to tell the future. That's not what prophet was. The prophet Isaiah is... Probably the most important of the prophets. And we've got a whole lot of pro books by prophets. But do, does the Bible record all the prophets? Probably not. Probably not? Can you think of any prophets that we don't have recorded in Scripture? Okay, John was, yeah, John was called, John the Baptist was called a prophet. He was a prophet. He didn't write a book. You're, you're absolutely correct. Elijah and Elisha. There you go. That, that's who I was thinking through. Yeah, Elijah and Elisha. They didn't write any books. They're in the history books of Scripture. They're, you'll find them in Chronicles and Kings. Um, but they're not, they didn't write a book. There are actually two different types of prophets. There are oral prophets, and then there were the written prophets, which we have those. The oral prophets were Ahijah, Ido, Jehu, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Oded, Shamimi, 
uh, Arazziah, Hanani, Jack, Jahaziel, and Huldah. Yeah. No. I can spell them. Those were, those were all prophets um, in the Old Testament. Now, David had three prophets that wrote no books that would just barge in on him and say stuff, right? Yeah. Who was the prophet that, that, that caught him with Bathsheba? Nathan. Nathan. We don't have a book of Nathan, do we? I, I mean, he shows up once, twice in, in the whole thing. But there was Nathan, Micaiah, Eliezer. They were the three prophets who worked with David. We have their names recorded, and sometimes we have what they said. And it's like they show up and then they disappear. Well, they don't just disappear, do they? Not usually. They, uh, they just weren't, what was going on was specifically for the person that they went to. In this case, it would have been King David. The message was for him. Whereas the prophets that we have that wrote they wrote a message that was for the people they were sent to, but that message had a dual fulfillment. And it was also for us. That's why God had them record it. It's why he kept it in Scripture. There are a lot of other books that are not part of the canon. They're not part of our Bibles that are out there that were recorded but they didn't have a message that God meant for us to have today that was universal. And so as we look at Scripture and as we look at prophets, and we're going to be in Isaiah here until Christmas, um, one of the reasons we have the book is because it had a fulfillment that was also going to be future. We call this dual fulfillment. Um, it's one of those things that... Isaiah had no clue about. He thought he was writing about his day, his time, but it also includes understanding of a future day and time um, that there was a fuller fulfillment of it. Uh, and so as we look into this, we will um, begin to see all of that. He knew that there, was a, that there was a Messiah coming and all that, but his thought was, they, it, based on his, what was happening in his day. He's looking for that fulfillment, but as God gives it to him, it's a much larger fulfillment that we would see with the coming of Christ. We call that dual fulfillment. So as we look at this, we'll see that. So some basic information. Um, there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, realizing that the chapter markings are arbitrary. They were put in... Um, place by um, people writing scripture much later. There's like uh, all sorts of stories about why some of the chapter markings are the way they are because they don't really make a lot of sense. Particularly in English, they don't make a lot of sense because there's like, it breaks up sentences. Why is this in chapter, you know, chapter three and this is chapter four? It's the same sentence. We, we would look at it and we read the story and we're like, that's the same thought. They should be together. And so the stories go that uh, it was a monk riding a donkey uh, from one place to another. And he was on the back of the donkey marking where the chapter breaks. I mean, there's all kinds of stories like that. But they, they broke Isaiah up into 66 chapters. 
which then they took the chapters and broke those down into verses. So there are actually 1,292 verses um, in Isaiah. How was the Old Testament written? What was it written on? Scrolls. Anybody ever seen the Hebrew scroll before? No? Nobody? I should put Okay, you've seen pictures at least. Okay. Hebrew is written, it's called a block letter text. It means that they, they use a square and each letter fits in that square. Um, and then there, the lines are so many spaces of letters. And then you go to the next line and it goes across and they make columns. Anybody know how Hebrew is written? Right to left. So unlike ours, we write left to right. So we flip our books this way. A scroll would have had to have been unrolled from this end. A scroll of Isaiah is written on 17 sheets of parchment. 17 sheets. That would make the scroll 20 feet, 24 feet long and 10 to 10.6 inches wide. This thing is huge. I mean, 24 feet, that's this room. You'd have to stretch it all the way out. In little columns of text, there were 54 of them. There's a reason I'm telling you this, and I'll give it to you in a minute. The oldest text of Isaiah that we have is from Qumran, part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They have an almost complete Isaiah text. Uh, it's got some damage, but I mean, it, there's enough of it that this text is just like the text we have today, and there are very little differences and stuff. Usually it's like the spelling of a name that changes. And you know how that goes. It, things, we change them and all that. The scroll was written that's from Qumran somewhere between 356 and 103 BC. Which as we get into Isaiah is only a few hundred years after Isaiah actually wrote it. Um, so that's, that's pretty amazing. That puts that text at uh, 24, almost 2,500 years old. And it's almost identical to the text we have today. There's been no change with the exception of a, some spelling drift, uh, which that's, that's pretty amazing. As we look at this scroll, I mean, you're talking a, bowl, a, a, a bundle this big. Now, remember the lesson we had? Jesus shows up in his hometown, and he's going to give a word to the synagogue. What text did he ask for? Isaiah. And then he opened it to a particular place. Remember? Now, that scroll is this long. He chose a text at the end, Isaiah 53. So you got a scroll that if you stretched it out, which you, you didn't stretch it out in a room, you would scroll it, you know, one side here, and you'd pull a little this way and roll it up. And pull it. This is what Jesus did. He's got this scroll, and he's got to find. Now, there are no chapter markings, no verse markings. So you've got to find your spot that he's looking for. All those, I mean, what did I tell you? There are 54 columns of small handwritten texts. And Jesus is reading along, nope, not here, shh, nope, not here, to find his, I mean, just to get you, a, give you a picture of this. It's not a simple thing. I've, I've had the privilege of 
being, going to a synagogue and taking out the scrolls and laying them out and actually reading them and, and looking at them. And it's really cool. But let me tell you, to turn those scrolls, because it's a par- parchment. It's very fragile. You know, you, you know, and they were very expensive to do. So for Jesus to do that. So this is, a, this is where Jesus is. He's looking at what we're looking at here. Anyway, comments or questions? That's the easy stuff. I don't know. All right. Uh, where are we at? So Isaiah. Isaiah is known as the prince of prophets, just like Spurgeon is the prince of preachers. Um, Isaiah is known as the prince of prophets. The reason is due to the length of his ministry. Isaiah ministered in Israel for almost 50 years as a prophet. We don't know what he did before. We didn't know, or, well, he died after. Um, But he was a prophet for 50 years. He brought the word of the Lord to the people. Um, Secondly, the impact of his message. Isaiah's message has huge impact, not just for the people of his day, but throughout time as we come forward and realize how much he wrote about the Messiah. Um, The boldness of Isaiah's faith. Uh, We see him going to kings, kings that hated prophets, and he would just show up and give his message. He was very bold um, in his faith. And then fourthly, Jesus and his disciples used his recorded preaching, the book of Isaiah, more than any other document from the ancient world. Isaiah is quoted more in the rest of the Bible than any other book. There are a lot, uh, I mean, Luke, Luke bases his whole structure on Isaiah. Paul's book of Romans borrows heavily from Isaiah. It's like he looked at Isaiah, looked at Christ and said, okay, let me sum it up for you, which would make sense because Paul, being a Pharisee, being studied, would have been very knowledgeable about Isaiah. And when he started looking at all that stuff, goes, wait, that's, that's Jesus. And he starts putting them together for us, particularly in the book of Romans, and makes those connections. So Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, two major aspects to prophecy. As we look at prophecy, as we said, prophets brought the message to the people. We call that foretelling. We call that foretelling, or not foretelling, foretelling. Telling. <laughs> forth telling. Now, forth telling is, um, it refers to a prophet's addressing the concerns of his own time with a God-given message. That makes sense, right? The message can have timeless application as well. Now, see, this is where we start separating out the oral prophets who didn't write, or they, some of them did write, but they, the books aren't included. Isaiah has got timeless application that applies to us, even today. Uh, they primarily, they were, are focused on an issue of the prophet's own historical context. Didn't finish that. Um, so that's what forth-telling is. And dealing with... Um, Issues of their day, and we're going to see just what Isaiah's issues were. And why I did that? Oh, okay. Uh, with it. I know that some of you are writing this down. 
We haven't gotten to the interesting stuff yet. <laughs> All right, so that's foretelling. The other is foretelling. Um, these are the two major aspects. Foretelling is uh, more what we're used to thinking about when we deal with prophecy. And foretelling refers to a prophetic message that reveal future events. Uh, understanding this is important because this is where textual criticism is going to come into play in a minute. Um, such a message nevertheless encourages God's people in the present day. So it wasn't just some futuristic thing that Isaiah is telling. It had relevance to the people in his day as well. All right, time and setting. Remember I said it was three-something? I better flip back. 356, there you go. 356. Isaiah actually lived and wrote and ministered and prophesied between 740 and 700 B.C. He died in 700, somewhere right around there. Huh? Well, okay, that's, that's the time... We don't know. We don't have an exact date. I know that he said, I said 50 years. But that's when he, the book, that's when the book was written. We know from the historical context of the book, the events take place here, but he was doing it before that. He's referred to in other documents. Um, the Assyrian, uh, the Assyria, uh, Assyria dominated in power at the time, uh, they were the world, you know, the, the world power at the time. Um, and they were causing a lot of the problems that were transpiring. Whoops. I hate when I do that. Prophesied in Jerusalem. In and? Wow. In and around? Probably in missing the word around. Yeah, prophesied in and around Jerusalem. Um, so he's, from, he's in the southern kingdom. He didn't deal a whole lot with the northern kingdom. So he's dealing with the kings of Judah. All right, now my favorite. Timeline. Timeline. Here, Carl, pass those around, would you? Yeah, you're going to want to hang on to the timeline. as we uh, work through this. All right, I'm going to go ahead and put it up, and now I'm going to make some comments about several of the people on it. All right, so there's our timeline. Grab one when it comes around, and you can look at it, because this is pretty small. These are the 50 years uh, that um, Isaiah is in. These are the years that he, we know for sure that he ministered in. Um, we've got the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They're ruling. They are there. Hosea, the prophet Hosea was a contemporary of uh, Isaiah. Actually, he started prophesying before. Hmm, excuse me. Uh, he did. Here's an interesting point. 
Romulus, the Roman emperor, Roman king. This is his time period. He comes to power and is ruling in Rome. At the time, Isaiah is uh, writing the book of Isaiah. We can also see that Micah um, was prophesying. Um, Another prophet, uh, Jotham, or I'm sorry, uh, not Jotham. Jotham's one of the kings. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, that, yeah, I think those are all the... Hezekiah? He's a king. He's a king. Um, yeah, I can't read that. It's just too small, even with my bifocals. Uh, okay, some of you might be a, remember the siege of Samaria. We talked about that in Shalmanzer. The fifth takes Israel into captivity. That happens to... The, uh, the time of Isaiah, that's when all the people in the northern kingdom, they come in and they take all the men away. And then they bring all men from another place and deposit them in Israel and all that. That takes place during Isaiah's uh, time. Uh, there was another... Uh, oh, way back here. Just before the time of Isaiah, uh, Homer writes the Iliad. Just to put time for... Uh, so... Homer writes the Iliad in Greece um, and the Odyssey. Isaiah, not long after. I mean, we're talking 10 years. Yeah, somewhere around 750, Homer writes that. And so Isaiah would have been alive. I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Isaiah read uh, the Iliad or that I doubt it because he probably didn't read Greek uh, because the Greeks hadn't spread their language and everything there. But that's the time frame. This is the ancient world that we see. So a lot of us are familiar with um, Homer and that. And so it's written in the same, I mean, in the lifetime of Isaiah. Pretty cool, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. It's funny because a lot of people will focus on the secular history. Uh-huh. And we believe it. It's awesome. It's terrific. We can trust it. But yeah. Nobody has any questions whether Homer wrote the Odyssey or the Iliad, which was written 10 years before Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, but we'll see in a few minutes. People have all sorts of questions and qualms about Isaiah having written the book of Isaiah. That's why I put this in here, because a lot of us went to secular schools, whether it was in high school or college, and you know this is presented, Homer's presented as... You know, this is absolutely true. We've got no questions or anything. And how many copies of that do we have in comparison to an entire copy of Isaiah that's only 300 years after he wrote it? Whereas the Odyssey and the Iliad, I mean, I don't, it's like a thousand years to, the, to one of the earliest copies and stuff. It's, it's stupid. Okay, let's talk about some of the kings that Isaiah served. The first one being Uzziah. Uh, we, we, we know Uzziah. It start, I, the book of Isaiah starts out with in the year of Uzziah. Yeah. Uzziah um, was the son and successor of King Amaziah of Judah. Uh, let's see. Uzziah was 16 years old when he came to power. He mounted successful campaigns against the Philistines. He constructed numerous cisterns, military outposts in the wilderness, um, making widespread settlement possible. So 
Under Uzziah, he created a system of wells so that the people could move out of the cities and spread out, which if you have more land, you have more food. If you have more food, you can have more people. If you have more people, there's more money, more military and all that. It begins to grow and prosper. Think of it in terms of the great Western expansion of the United States. As we moved farther west, we, were, we found that we could grow all that food in the, uh, what are they called? Plains, thank you. The word just eluded me. We, we found the plains, and they were shipping all that food back and to the cities and all that on the east coast, and we were able to industrialize because people didn't have to spend as much time raising food. I mean, before that, I mean, it was, you, you, if you didn't raise your own food, you had to get it from somewhere else, but now we could do it in mass out in the plains. The same thing is true in Uzziah's day. He goes and he, now these were public um, projects and they were funded by the public to go out and build cisterns, which are large structures to hold water. Uzziah is known for promoting agriculture, which is what we just said. Uh, his predecessors who relied on troops to supply their own Arms. So if you were in the Jewish military and you were called up to serve, you had to bring your own armor, your own sword, whatever your family could afford to provide for you. Uzziah changes that. Um, Uzziah armed his troops and he bought only the most advanced weaponry. So think more in terms of our military. I don't have, you know, when you serve, you don't bring whatever rifle. I mean, think the Revolutionary War you did, right? Washington didn't provide anybody with weapons. You were called up to serve in the militia. You brought your own sword. You brought your own knife. You brought your own musket and all that. Well, that was what was going on. But this is World War I, World War II. Uncle Sam was footing the bill and buying up the best military-grade equipment that they could find and issuing it. And that's what Uzziah started doing. Which, what does that lead to? Well, professional soldiers and a much better, better armed soldier. Uh, let's see. Uzziah is not remembered uh, as a, a great leader, as somebody ushering in Judah's golden age after David and Solomon's time period. What is he remembered for? What do you know about Uzziah? Yes, there you go. He's remembered as the king of leprosy. Uh, his brief account in 2 Kings, it says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord uh, with, the, with really no explanation for the king's affliction um, of this leprosy, which causes him to have all sorts of problems. We know that uh, the disease persisted until the day of his death. With leprosy, would he be able to be an effective king? No. Why? He was unclean. He was unclean. That meant that his son had to come to power and be his regent. Uzziah wasn't dead. He was still technically in charge. But you couldn't, he couldn't come out in public. 
Because he's unclean, the counselors couldn't come to him because they would be in the presence of somebody unclean. I mean, there's all that stuff. So he lived in, in a wing of the palace all by himself, and his son ruled in his stead. His son is Jotham. You can see it, see him here, and you can see the overlap. Um, you see how they overlap? It's because Jotham wasn't, he was king, but he was the regent because his father couldn't actually rule as king. And so this is part of the problem when you start getting into the, the dates of the kings, because there's a lot of overlaps between them. Anytime they would go out to battle, they would name somebody to be king, regent in their place because they often died in battle. And so they wanted to make it clear who was in charge. And so there would be overlaps in these things. So Jotham overlaps Uzziah. It's not a mistake. Uh, what do we know about Jotham? Jotham uh, succeeded his father as king. He was 25 years old. Can you imagine leaving your 25-year-old <laughs> in charge of an entire kingdom? At least by today's standards, we'd look at that and go, yeah, no way. I mean, that, that's the age range of those protesting out in Portland and all that. Yeah. He reigned 16 years. And in that 16-year period, um, let's see. He was effective. Um, his, his reign was marked by building projects. Material prosperity and military successes. That's all he did. We don't have him as being a great spiritual leader of the people. He was economically sound. He was militarily sound. He was fiscally sound. He wasn't against God. He wasn't evil. He was just okay. He was, you know, just, he lived life. And he did a decent job at it. His son, Ahaz, comes to power. Um, Ahaz name actually means he has grasped, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, he was considered an evil ruler. He participated in some of the most monstrous, idolatrous practices of the ancient world. His 16 year reign, um, was at the heart of, uh, Isaiah's time period, and let's see. Uh, yeah, he suffered the final humiliation of his life um, by not being buried in the family crypt. Ahaz was so evil they didn't they they wouldn't they didn't bury him with all the rest of the kings of the line of David. Now we come to the one that everybody remembers, Hezekiah, who is the son of Ahaz, Ahaz being very evil, wicked king, his son. Um, yeah, he comes to power at 25 years of age. At the time in history, the nation of Assyria had risen to great power. So Assyria is at the peak of its abilities during the life of Hezekiah. He brings great religious reform to the people uh, by basically... This is what we, you know, telling the people this is by law. You know, this is what we're doing. I said so. So the people weren't necessarily, uh, you know, it's, it's just like the Roman Empire. They would march in, they would conquer a, a town, and they'd declare them all Christians and force them to be baptized. Basically, that's what Hezekiah did. We're Jews. We're going to worship Jewishly. Put away your idols. You don't have a choice. 
that didn't change the people's hearts, which we're going to see. That's one of the big messages in Isaiah. Um, and we see it here. Hezekiah believed. He was a believer, and he tried to make everybody else in the country a believer by doing what they were supposed to do, uh, but we, don't, we see that the people really weren't into it. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. Um, Hezekiah was not willing to court favor with the Assyrians. He refused to bow the knee to them. Um, he was convinced we're God's people. We can do it ourselves. We don't need them. God will take care of us. He took all the temple vessels that Ahaz, his father, had corrupted and purified them and put them back in the temple where they belonged for their intended purposes. He restarted the religious services of the priests that they were supposed to. Uh, Hezekiah knew that his defiance of Assyria would lead to conflict, and he prepared for it. What's Hezekiah known for? Yes. The number one issue in the Middle East is water. water. Jerusalem does not, it only sits on like one well, but it had, you know, all these years, the city grew. I mean, especially under Solomon. So Hezekiah tunneled through solid rock, which is quite impressive given the day and age and the lack of explosives, drills, and other things, and tunnels to a spring to bring the water into the city. And then after he did that, he started a wall project to include that spring in the city itself. Uh, the Pool of Shiloh is uh, where the water comes from. Uh, let's see. Uh, when Sennacherib shows up, the king of Assyria to um, attack. They are able to withstand it, and God protects them. Uh, we see that uh, Hezekiah has a sickness. He prays for Isaiah to talk to God about you know, not uh, letting him die from it, which he does, but the years after that are not very good years for Hezekiah. He begins to slide. And so we come to his son, Manasseh, uh, who is one of the most wicked kings. We won't talk about him because he's after the time of Isaiah. But his son is probably the most wicked there ever was in Judah. Anyway, that's uh, Hezekiah. So this is our timeline. These are the current events, if you will, of Isaiah's day. Comments, questions? Something I missed? I love timelines. All right, like I said, this is background setting, trying to warm us up to the book of Isaiah. All right, now in way of introduction to the book. What? Oh, yeah. Just, timelines are great. They tell us where we've been, but they don't help us understand the, the now. So, yeah. All right, authorship of the book. This is where we come into some problems. There are three views on authorship 
of the book of Isaiah. The first view being the traditional Christian and rabbinic, the, the rabbis, scholars, unanimously attribute it to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, no question, he wrote the whole book and we have no issues. This is, um, you know, this is the view that probably all of us in here hold. In the late 18th century, liberal critics began to argue that chapters 40 through 66 were actually written 150 years later by someone else living in Babylon. We call this the second Isaiah. And so that Isaiah, and there are Bibles out there that you can get that actually have Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, and you'll see in a minute Isaiah 3, that there are actually three different books and that somebody stitched them together and, and tried to pan it off as uh, things. Minus, mind you, liberal critics in the late 18th century. This is the period of time where the Great Enlightenment is starting. The idea of science has now come to the forefront. And they begin to reject certain aspects of religion. Anybody want to guess what those aspects were? Creation. Well, okay, that, that sure. I'm looking for something much broader. Okay, prophecy, the supernatural. This is the age of enlightenment. Supernatural events don't happen. The late 18th century is what gave rise to the deists, many of which we know were um, part of our country's birthing. These men believed in God and, and they believed in, in who he was and all that, but they didn't necessarily believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe that, that those things were there. Actually, they, they, a lot of them, they believed in God and they believed that he gave us rules and regulations and that he cared and all that, but they, they had this view of the blind watchmaker that he wound up the world, started it off, gave us, gave us the instruction of what was supposed to take place and then put it in its place and left it and really wasn't interacting with it. That's where this view comes from. And so they start reading Isaiah and they're like, well, the first 30, cha 30, 40 chapters, okay, yeah, those were written by Isaiah. But the second half, well, this is where we start getting into all the foretellings of the future. And um, yeah, they don't buy it. Later on, more recently, more recent liberals this past century, um, the early part of last century, uh, they began to argue that actually chapters 56 through 66 were written by still another person, the Trito Isaiah or third Isaiah. And they want to say that that's written even later, much later, like after Jesus comes. And so they've gone back and filled in um, those prophecies, they, they made them in the prophet. Okay, this is what he did. So now let's write it as prophecy. So it looks like they knew beforehand. See, they, they want to go. These are the revisionists and they want to revise history. They want to revise historical documents so that because they don't, if, if this is true, if God is really telling people what's going to happen, 
then all the rest of prophecy must be true, which means that there is a future judgment. You see that this is, it's a whole thought process that goes through this. They can't accept it then because if that's then, then now we're responsible to God and we're going to be judged on it. Go ahead, Annie. Isn't that what was the big problem that he was, he was not only telling what was going to happen off in the distant future, but the near future too? Mm -hmm. that was yeah. Yeah, there is, so they reject that out of hat. Go ahead. What do the people today do with the fact that we have Dead Sea Scrolls and things that were written within 100 years of when it actually happened and they're complete? <laughs> they, 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 they claim that, they, they, that it was all planted. They come up with these, just like, okay, so conspiracy theories. They, these are academic conspiracy theories. So they publish papers on them and they've got PhD in front of their name. And people believe them as, well, this is, this is got to be something true because this guy's a highly acclaimed academic, not some whack job sitting with a tinfoil hat on his head living in his mother's basement. They're not any different, though. I don't want to believe that, you know, that this is really what happened to me. I've got to blame the government scientists experimenting on me. I didn't screw up my own life. Some, the government screwed it up or the aliens came and they probed me and that's why I'm all this way. They, they, they want to they reject the personal responsibility. Historically, guys with PhDs are rejecting personal responsibility to God. It's not any different. The, there's no difference in what's going on. We just up the ante. These guys have got PhDs in history and science and whatnot and they're like, ah, oh, it's not possible. Because if it is, I owe God something. And I don't want to owe God. God's not over me. He's not in charge of me. There is no God. I am God. I decide what's right and wrong for me. And so we create these theories that don't really have any proof. As you said, we've got the Qumran text. Well, they can't be from that period. They're, they're doctored. Somebody made them and they, they hid them away in these caves. And all that. That's crazy but when you put it in big large flowy words in multi-volume desk reference sets and then stamp it written by phd so-and-so well he's got a phd he's got to know what he's talking about when in reality when you boil him down he doesn't sound any different than the quack sitting in his basement with a tinfoil hat on sorry that's what i feel these guys no you're <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. Um, can't they tell, though, by the, the parchments and stuff where they were... Oh, they've got also... Trust me. The, okay, so they have a bone box that is... Uh, a bone box is where they put the bones of a person who, after they're dead, and the, the bones dry... It, these ossuaries, they have one that talks about Jesus. The entire Jewish nation refuses to accept it, and the Jewish authority will not accept that this box is actually a true artifact and that it was Jesus' brother's bone box and that it refers to Jesus on it because usually when you write the inscriptions, it's usually they refer to whoever's the most prominent person in the family. Usually the father before or something of that nature. Well, in this case, it refers to Jesus the Christ because there's nobody more prominent, but they won't accept it. And they've got all these crazy theories and it's been tested by scientists in multiple labs in other countries the, the dating and all that is original. They've actually arrested the guy who found the box. Um, there, there was the Biblical Archaeology Review. They've had 
whole volumes in their articles dealing with it because it has been going on for like 20 years. It's been in and out of the courts, the world courts, and the, the world archaeology keeps telling Israel, the Israeli archaeological authority, this box is real, but they can't accept it because then that would mean Jesus really was somebody of importance and not just some quack that they crucified and they've got, they, it has to change their entire view of, of who he was and that history and all that and nobody wants to do that. So no, this guy had to make this bone box. So we're going to treat him as a criminal, uh, impersonating, you know, uh, artifacts and, and he's been arrested, he's been fined, he's had his whole shop seized. I mean, there's, there, yeah, this is all stuff, you won't find it, it's not mainstream news or anything, but yeah, this is going on. This is what they do. They refuse to accept that this stuff is true. So they begin arresting people because who have evidence. Other comment or question? I know I'm on my soapbox. <laughs> All right, so let me give you some reasons why. Man, we're going to run out of time. I haven't even gotten to everything yet. All right, quickly, I'm going to give you some reasons. Um, why this is not true because just me telling you isn't good enough. So first, the language throughout the entire book is similar. So from chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to, to 66, there's no change in language. If it had been 150 years later, think about English. Did we speak the same English I'm speaking right now 150 years ago? No. The book is the same Hebrew throughout which 150 years later, what language were the Jews speaking? Aramaic. Aramaic, not Hebrew. That's why they had to have Pharisees, specialists in the Hebrew language because the people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. When they came back from Babylon, they spoke Aramaic. We don't see that in this book. So there's one reason to reject that it's two different authors. Secondly, um, let's see, both parts of Isaiah reflect the same sins and the same evils. Both sections mention falsehoods, so the internal message is consistent. Let's face it, people are not consistent for 150 years. Look at the United States. The sins of our great-grandparents and the things that were going on in the nation in that day. I mean, even just 100 years ago, what was the big thing 100 years ago? Okay, well, women to vote, but that wasn't a sin. Oh, sorry. Well, prohibition, alcohol. If we went back 100 years, everything in the church written was about prohibition. Today, what's the big issue? Many. Well, okay, there are many. Just pick one. Gay, the homosexuality, that's the big issue in the church today. Is it okay? Is it not? Nobody 100 years ago would talk about homosexuality. I mean, we were, we were still in the Victorian mindset of all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, in 150 years, if it had been, the message would have changed. But it doesn't. It is completely consistent through the whole book. Thus lending to the argument it was written by one guy in the same time period. Third, the New Testament quotes Isaiah in a way that suggests both sections were written by Isaiah um, the, the apostles, Jesus himself quotes both, section, both sections. 
So if, if it had been not, if it wasn't authoritative, if it was somehow messed up, which, okay, you could argue that, well, Jesus set it up that way. Um, if you're a Trito Isaiah, it just doesn't follow through. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you use something that you know is false to argue your own? I mean, that's just, it doesn't work. Fourth, the writer had knowledge of Palestine. As you read through Isaiah, we know that Isaiah had knowledge of Palestine, but lacked knowledge of the region of Babylon. He didn't understand the religions, the cultures, or the people in Babylon, but could explain everything in Israel, which if it had been written 150 years later, nobody had been to Israel. Nobody grew up there. They wouldn't know about the pools and, and the gates and the temple. They would have never have seen it. How can you describe what you haven't seen? It's not like they had television or photographs or any of that stuff, even oral tradition handed down. You ever played the telephone game? You can't get around this room with the same message. So 150 years later, it doesn't work. So we get this whole sense that here's a guy who obviously did not grow up in Babylon writing this book, argument for one guy. And the fifth reason the walls of Jerusalem in chapter 62, according to the writer, the walls of Jerusalem are still standing. We know that's not the case. 150 years later, Nehemiah, he comes to rebuild them. Um, and so, again, critical of this idea that the writer was two different people 150 years later. It just doesn't hold water. So there's a good five reasons to reject it, if you ever get into one of those conversations. Um, yeah. Anyway, comments, questions? Moving. All right, real quick, we'll go through the outline. We'll see this more often. Um, yeah, this is a breakdown. This is the breakdown we're going to use as we're going through our thing. So the outline for Isaiah. Uh, the first six chapters, rebuke and promises from the Lord. Secondly, 7 through 12, we're going to see the promises of Emmanuel. This is where we usually jump in as Christians. Um, New Testament, you know, we, we want to we know about the promises of Emmanuel, and we'll go and read those chapters. Then there's 13 through 23, the coming judgment of the nations. We tend to skip that, and we're going to look into that a little bit. So this is what's in this book, and you can see that we skip over a lot of this stuff. The first cycle of judgment and promises in chapters 24 through 27. Woes upon the unbelievers of Israel. A lot of people like to jump there um, and, you know, reasons why we need to help Israel and all sorts of stuff. We'll look into that a little bit and just see how that fits. The second cycle of judgment and promises, chapters 34 through 39. The greatness of God, chapters 40 through 48. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we learn a lot about who God is. Peace brought by the servant or Messiah, chapters 49 through 57. That's where we like to camp, particularly around Christmas time. And then finally, the program of peace, chapters 58 through 66. All right. Comments or questions? That's the outline we're working with. I could get you all kinds of outlines. Um, they're very detailed <laughs> or very not detailed. Anyway. Okay, moving on. One of the interesting um, things that we find in Isaiah that we don't find elsewhere 
are the names he uses for God. Isaiah has this huge list of 34 names. You're not going to be able to write them all down because we're going to run out of time uh, before I get through 34 names. But here we go. Uh, there's Emmanuel. We know that one. Counselor. Mighty God. Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. Wonderful. Isaiah refers to him as the light. The Holy One of Israel. Most High. The Maker. Righteous. Most Upright. Crown of Glory. Cornerstone. He refers to him as the Rock. The Judge. The Living God. The Lord of Armies. Glory of the Lord. Everlasting God. Chosen One. Servant. Savior. Redeemer. King. Arm of the Lord, man of sorrows, compassionate, commander, exalted one, mighty one, bridegroom, Holy Spirit, and God of truth. Uh, those are the 34 names. Isaiah is prolific in his description of God through these names as he writes about him and what he is to say and to whom and to what. That's an amazing, this is why he's the Prince of Prophets. Um, just his use of language as he describes God to us. All right, comments or questions? I know, it's a lot to take in. All right, get to the, to the meat of the, the book, if you will. The key ideas. These are the things that we find in the book. These are the things where we're going to be camping um, in the next uh, 13 weeks as we look at this. These are the, the things that we find in the book of Isaiah, the broad strokes. Sin and its impact on the relationship with God and with other nations. I want to stress and underline with other nations. Remember, as we've talked over the last couple of years, the Jews, modern-day Israel, has this view that other nations are nothing but fuel for hell. The Pharisees most certainly had a view that the Gentiles were not worthy. And Christ came to change that idea that, that we were, that we were redeemable and all that. Well, guess what? Isaiah believed it too, or Isaiah writes about it. The problem of sin is a major theme in Isaiah since it was the reason for the people's separation for God, their repeated disobedience, and the resulting judgment that came upon them. In addition, Isaiah also addresses how the problem of sin would one day be removed. That's where the future comes in. Sin is the issue here. As Chris has been talking about it as he's gone through, we've taken sin out of our language in modern-day America. They did the same thing in Isaiah's day. They were in the same place, and Isaiah keeps trying to tell them, hey, it's, it's what you're doing. You're doing wrong. You're doing evil. You're sinning against God. There would be a new creation that was not plagued by sorrow and grief that came from living in a fallen and sinful world. So that's the first key. Second key, God as Lord of history. We don't often think of that. Isaiah's going to go back and look at the past as we deal with this. Isaiah reveals how God is always in control of any given situation, including this coronavirus. Yeah. To, um, yeah. Wait. 
I turned too many pages. Even when people, wow. Okay, even when people, the people or their king rebelled against God, he was not throttled. Throttled? Throttled. Yeah, I can't say that. Yeah, fancy word. The same is true here. If whoever gets elected in November isn't your candidate, God's plans have not been stopped. That's a message that Isaiah had to preach (laughs) all the way back then. In fact, God knew the people would rebel, and Isaiah reveals that the judgment and exile were part of God's plan. Wow, that was part of God's plan. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Another key idea, number three, the remnant. God always has a remnant. Sometimes the remnant is just what is left over after a judgment or purification by the hand of God. They're not necessarily better. They're just what's left. Other times, the remnant refers to those few who were faithful to God and who clung to him in spite of being surrounded. That's an interesting thought when you think about it, that sometimes God's remnant includes people who don't believe. That's an interesting idea. Both God and the prophet looked on the remnant with favor. Either one. But this does not always mean that faithful, the faithful escaped the effects of God's judgment on his people. That's one of the things that Chris is bringing out in his study in Revelation, isn't it? That sometimes the faithful get caught up in it. Um, they were encouraged to hang their faith, hang on to their faith and pers- persevere. We get that, we see that in Peter and Jude and those little books at the end of our New Testament that we tend to ignore. Uh, told they could have joy. Wow, where have we heard that one before? Like I told you, Paul takes from Isaiah greatly and incorporates it. They were told they could have joy in every difficult time by knowing that God is building toward an infinitely better world to come. Wow, that just sounds like something right out of... Isaiah is stealing from Paul, isn't he? Well, yeah, we got to hang out in our Old Testament a little more. Paul isn't writing anything new. Isaiah is telling it to the people then. Okay, next, the Holy One of Israel. This is one of Isaiah's favorite names for God, occurring 31 times in the book. The name reflects the perfection and purity of God's character. That ought to tell us something about who God is. Isaiah is writing about the perfectness of God when he uses that name. All right. The servant of the Lord. We love that one. We, we often come to this idea, but it's a big idea. When the phrase is first introduced, the servant refers to Israel. Israel was meant to be the servant of the Lord. As the book progresses, the description of the servant becomes increasingly focused on an individual who would somehow atone for God's people. From our modern perspective, it's clear that Jesus' fulfillment fulfilled this role with his ministry, death, and resurrection. It is interesting that as we look at it in terms of development, 
that the entire nation early on was the servant of the Lord. They had a purpose and a place in the world. And as that developed, and we see the line of the kings, and we read the genealogy of Jesus, we see how it narrows and narrows and narrows till we get to Jesus. It's an interesting idea. We see the development of it here in Isaiah and the fulfillment of it in the New Testament is really cool. Uh, let's see, judgment and salvation. That's another key idea he has. In the early chapters of Isaiah, there is great focus on God's judgment in response to the sin and rebellion of his people. As the book progresses, <coughs> there is an increasing shift toward salvation judgment and salvation the sin of the people must be paid for in some way that's an idea that's that is really uh, a big thing in the in the book of isaiah because it's he's looking towards that future they couldn't pay for their sins back then <clears throat> all they could do is cover them up the people must repent in order to restore fellowship with god there's that idea of repentance we've talked about over and over again. Judgment precedes salvation. Judgment is never just a simple punishment. That's an interesting idea. Judgment is always meant to bring repentance and salvation to God's people. God does not punish just for the purpose of punishment. It's to bring about change. He has a reason for it. It isn't um, what's the word I want? It's not um, punitive, uh, which I think sometimes we forget, uh, particularly if you're Catholic. Uh, it's always punitive. If you don't do the right thing, God's going to get you. Well, that's punitive. That's, you know, God's trying to get your attention. That's probably one of the biggest differences between evangelicals and uh, Catholics, or at least Orthodox, not just Catholics, but Greek, Russian... All of them. God's punishment is not punitive. He's not trying to get you. He's trying to get your attention. All right. The major themes that we find in the book um, as we look at this. The holiness of God. Trust and confidence. God versus the idols. That's a big theme. Sin and punishment. God, the sovereign Lord of history. Salvation of our God. Faith in God is true security. And finally, Messiah and suffering servant. That's what's in this book. We're going to unpack a lot of this uh, in the next 13 weeks. I know I threw a lot at you today. Hopefully something stuck. Um, don't worry. We will come back in depth and look at a lot of this. So, any questions, comments? All right, let me close this in prayer and we'll get out of here. Lord, we thank you for the day, and Lord, we thank you for the chance to look at your book of Isaiah. Lord, to see the message of what the author wrote to us. And Lord, some of it we see how it's fulfilled, and some of it we're still scratching our heads. Lord, be with us as we go this week. In your name we pray. Amen.